Good evening. It is a joy to be with you, and uh, for those of you who are watching online, uh, it's a joy to be here uh, with all of your brothers and sisters that you know and love and miss. Uh, I'm looking forward to the day when all of this is behind us, but in the meanwhile, we must redeem the time, and I pray that we will do that this hour, that we will redeem the time that God has given us to come together and study His Word. Any time that we can do that, we believe that it is for our good. So I, I pray that at this time, all of us are prepared to engage in a Bible study together. Uh, I pray that we will remove all sort of uh, distractions uh, that might keep us from an understanding of God's Word and, and simply just open up God's Word and see what it says and see what God wants us to know and then see what God wants us to do. Before we begin our study, uh, let's say a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you at this time and we're thankful for this blessed occasion that you have given to us that we might grow in your word. Uh, Father, help us, to, uh, help us to see the things you would have us to, to know and do the things you would have us to do. Father, we want to pray for all who are assembled here, either in body or in spirit. Uh, Father, we pray for them one and all. We pray for those who are sick and afflicted in the world. We ask that you would, you would be with them and comfort them. And Father, we know that you are the God of all comfort. Uh, how important is that idea tonight as we've come together to think about the book of Nahum? Uh, the book of Nahum is a comforting book to your people. And so, Father, we pray that you will comfort us tonight uh, as we're in need of comfort. We want to thank you for Jesus Christ who gives us hope uh, in a time in which uh, the world feels hopeless. We have hope, and we're thankful for that. And Father, as there's uh, death around us, we have life, and we have life in Jesus, and we thank you for that as well. Uh, Father, it's this prayer that we pray in his name. Amen. All right. Hindsight. Re rediscovering the message of the minor prophets. And the uh, particular minor prophet book that we are considering this evening is the book of Nahum, the book of Nahum. Nahum is the seventh minor prophet book. It's on the shorter side. There are only three chapters to the book of Nahum, 47 verses all in all. And before I say anything further about the book of Nahum, if someone were to ask you, you know, tell me what you know about the book of Nahum, uh, how long could you carry on that conversation? Uh, the reason why I ask that question is because I believe that this particular minor, minor prophet book is somewhat obscure uh, to most people. I believe that's true, but perhaps even to many Christians, this particular Old Testament minor prophet book is somewhat obscure. When was the last time you heard a sermon? on the book of Nahum. Think about that, and you might see what I mean by that. And I believe that the obscurity of the book is a shame because the book accomplishes two great purposes. First purpose I believe the book accomplishes is that Nahum offers a great comfort to the people of God. Tonight we are going to be comforted by some of the things that we see in this book. We need God's comfort, and Nahum comforts us. But also, another great purpose of the book of Nahum 
is that the book warns sinners. The book warns sinners of the eventuality and the certainty of God's judgment. It warns sinners, the book does, of the eventuality and certainty of God's judgment. So the whole world needs to consider the message of Nahum because the whole world needs comfort and the whole world needs to come to grips with the certainty that is the judgment of the Lord. And as far as the, the book is concerned, if you'll look at the beginning of the book in chapter 1 and verse 1, you will see that this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. An oracle concerning Nineveh. And I read from the English Standard Version, if you're curious. Uh, so, Nineveh. What do we know about Nineveh and the Scriptures? Well, you might think about the book of Jonah. And tonight we're going to be talking about the book of Jonah. I know that a few weeks ago, Brother Eric Owens uh, stood in this very spot and delivered a lesson about the book of Jonah. I am sure that his lesson will be better than mine because he's an awesome speaker. But these two books are related, the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum. So I, what I want you to see, though, is that this is a book that is written concerning Nineveh. It's not written to Nineveh. The book itself is for the people of God. It is written for uh, the people of Judah, specifically, uh, who were living in the 7th century B.C. Now, the purpose of the book, I believe, like I said just a moment ago, is to uh, pronounce judgment upon the, the wicked city of Nineveh. But in the pronouncement of that judgment against that wicked Assyrian city of Nineveh, the effect of all of that is that God's people are going to find some comfort in the things that they hear concerning the future judgment of Nineveh. So let's talk about the connection that this book has to the book of Jonah. I, I believe that this book is really a sequel to the book of Jonah. And if you don't know anything about Nahum, you certainly know a good many things about the book of Jonah. God called an Israelite prophet by the name of Jonah, uh, who was the son of Amittai. Jonah was from Gath-Hefer. He performed his prophetic work under the reign of King Jeroboam II. And God called Jonah to go and to proclaim a particular message to the people of Nineveh, which is, you know, the, the, the people that the book of Nahum is concerned with. Not, you know, the same time, uh, some, some years passed between these two books, but it's the same nation. Well, Jonah does not like the message that God has given them him, him to do. He does not want to go to the people of Nineveh because he knows something about God. He knows that God is good. And he knows that God is slow to anger. And Jonah just knows that if he goes to Nineveh and if he proclaims a message of God's judgment to the people, he knows that they're probably going to repent. And the thing about that is that Jonah anticipates their repentance and he anticipates God's goodness coming um, into the scene. And he does not want that. He does not want God to be good to the Assyrian people. So what does Jonah do? 
God tells him to go to Nineveh. He goes down to Joppa. He gets in a boat, and the boat is headed to Tarshish, probably in southwest Spain. He's trying to get as far away from God. He's trying to get as far away from the calling of God as he possibly can. Of course, we know that's impossible. And what does the Lord do? Well, the Lord strikes up this great storm on the Mediterranean Sea. And Jonah and the sailors that are in the boat, they are panicked, the sailors especially. And Jonah knows, you know, he's, he's the one uh, who's has caused all of this because he's ran away from God. Well, he convinces the sailors to just throw him in the water. And, the, of course, the great fish swallows him up. That great fish is not only a means of judgment for Jonah, but it is a means of salvation for Jonah. Jonah needs God's goodness. He needs God to save him. He didn't want God to be good to the people of Nineveh. He didn't want God to save the people of Nineveh. Uh, So he's going to have to learn that God's goodness uh, is for any that God chooses to bestow it upon. Uh, God can save anyone that he wants to. If people turn to him, it is within God's right to be good to them. It is within God's right to be gracious and merciful to a group of people. So Jonah has to learn that lesson, and he, and he seems like he's changed in the inside of the fish. That's what chapter 2 is all about in the book of Jonah. And then Jonah goes and he fulfills the mission in chapter 3, although he fulfills that mission begrudgingly. Because we find in chapter 4, after Nineveh had repented, after they had heard the preaching from Jonah, and, and after they had had a change of heart, God relented of the disaster that he said that he was going to do to them. And Jonah's upset by this. In fact, if you look at Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, Jonah, he says, he kind of says, God, I knew you would do this. That's why I ran away. God, I knew that you were gracious, and I knew that that you're, you're merciful and you're slow to anger and that you abound in steadfast love and that you relent from disaster. God, I know all of this about it about you. That's why I did not want to go. So Jonah had to learn from God that God, it is within his right to care about the people of Nineveh. At that time, God said that there were 120,000 people who did not know their right hand from their left. And God's question to Jonah at the end of that book is, can I not pity them? Should I not pity them? And even mentions their cattle as well. Jonah, should I not pity their cattle? Isn't it a good thing that they have been saved from destruction, Jonah? Uh, And that's how the book ends. You know, we're not told whether or not Jonah had about face. Uh, We're not told whether or not he saw things the Lord's way. Uh, The question is just kind of left open-ended. So Nineveh is saved. But... If we know anything about history, we, we know that the repentance of Nineveh is short-lived. It's short-lived because about two decades after Jonah's ministry, what happens is that the Assyrians, they begin to get even more and more and more power. And the reason for this is because they began to be led by such men such as Tiglath-Pileser III, Uh, who is notorious in history as a violent man. Uh, He had a thirst for power. 
he had a thirst for territory, and the, the Assyrians were notorious for you know, just committing all kinds of war crimes. Shalmaneser V is another king that they had, uh, King Sennacherib. You may have heard of him before. He's uh, mentioned in the scriptures. But the, the Assyrians would conquer and subjugate most of their neighboring nations during that time and during these years, they are remembered in history to be the world power. They, they are, you know, the, the bully on the block. Now, God would eventually bring about justice to the Assyrian people for their wickedness, for their crimes, for their violence. In the days of Jonah, God spared them. He was patient with them. He was slow to anger with them. Uh, he was good to them. But Assyria reverting back to their wicked ways, it's going to test God's patience. So God has forgiven them once. Will he just let this go on and on and on without any sort of ramifications? Furthermore, God, during this time, he used Assyria to enact judgment against his own people. Uh, if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, in that chapter you will see that God used Assyria to, uh, to bring into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel. Of course, the, uh, the Israelites were divided at that time. You had the northern kingdom of Israel in the north, and then in the southern kingdom you had Judah. Well, in, in uh, 2 Kings 17 and verse 7, we read that the reason why God used the Assyrians to bring his own people into captivity is because of the sins of the Israelites. We read, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. 2 Kings 17 and verse 7. So that, that happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. They were taken into captivity by the Ninevites, by the Assyrians. And they would never recover from this. There was never, ever again a kingdom of Israel uh, in that land. There was still, however, the southern kingdom of Judah. They remained. And so... Judah would remain in that geographical spot where Jerusalem is in that surrounding area, and they knew that the Assyrians had carried their brothers into captivity. And eventually, those kings from Assyria, those Ninevite kings, they certainly visited Judah as well. And that's why we have in 701 B.C., the Assyrian king Sennacherib, he came against Judah, and he forced Hezekiah to pay tribute to him. And what Hezekiah did is he took out great treasures from the temple and he had to give them. He had to give them to the Assyrian king. And this is the moment in time where uh, the angel of the Lord would strike 185,000 Assyrian men dead one night. You ever heard of that in the scriptures? Uh, so you have this conflict between Judah and Assyria now. God is protecting Judah because why? Well, Judah had been more faithful to that point than their northern counterparts. But Assyria was ex expanding their empire. And in the, in the early 7th century, 
Assyria went into Egypt and they captured great cities of antiquity like Memphis, not Memphis, Tennessee, uh, but Memphis and also Thebes, uh, which is a particular city which is mentioned in the book of Nahum. But as that's happening, as Assyria is growing in power, what is also happening is that the Medes and the Elamites and the Babylonians, these nations are beginning to grow in power as well. Uh, as we know, the Assyrian nation is going to fall. And how are they going to fall? They're going to fall because uh, the Medes and the Babylonians are going to go and overtake them. And that's what the book of Nahum is all about. It, it is a prophecy uh, from God to the people of God to say, look, those Assyrians which, um, which are oppressing you, those Assyrians are going to be overthrown. That's why, and you may have heard this said before, that's why this book has been called the message that Jonah wanted to preach. Jonah wanted this job. He wanted to be able to say, look, Assyrians, you're, you're not going to make it. This is the job that he wanted because Nahum doesn't have to go to Nineveh. He doesn't have to preach to the people of Nineveh. He's just saying, look, this is what's going to happen, people of God. So that job was given, given to Nahum and not to Jonah. So the book of Nahum, what I want you to see from this book is that it is a prophecy concerning the fall of the city of Nineveh and this fall is going to occur in 612 B.C. And it's also a prophecy of how God would enact his justice against the city and how God would use the Medes and the Babylonians to do this. And God has done this throughout history. God, as we read in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, he changes times and seasons. What did Daniel say? Daniel said, God removes kings, and he sets up kings. In the New Testament, we read in Romans 13 and verse 1 that let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So as God used Assyria to judge Israel... Now, God is going to use the Medes and the Babylonians to judge Assyria. So, that will beg the question, well, why then, why then did Assyria fall? Why did Assyria fall? Well, Assyria fell for the same exact reason that the Israelites fell. Assyria fell because of sin. Assyria fell because of its own wickedness. What does... Proverbs 14 and verse 34 tell us. We read, Righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. So if you uh, take the negative form of that verse, what you'll find is that unrighteousness humbles or lowers or sometimes it even topples a nation. So that's true whether we're talking about the Israelites, the northern kingdom of Israel. It's true for the Assyrians. It's true for the Babylonians. It's true for the Romans later in history. Just go back and look at history. Every great nation that has ever fallen, the reason is sin. It's sin. It's something we need to know in this 
present time in which we live because we don't want history to repeat itself. And if you look at Nahum, and we're not going to have time to read every verse today, but God says specifically, this is why you're falling. Uh, if you look at verses 9 and 10, you can see that Nahum, or not Naaman, you can see that the Assyrians plotted evil against the Lord. You can't do that and get away with it. You cannot plot evil against the Lord and live to tell about it. And in verse 14, God says, you are vile. You are vile. In chapter 3 and verse 4, God said that they had succumbed to the countless whorings of the prostitute. Now, what does that mean? I don't know, but it doesn't sound good. And then in verse 19, uh, they're, they're guilty of unceasing evil. And history tells us that the Assyrians, the Ninevites, they certainly were. They are uh, remembered in history as one of the most violent, cruel people who ever lived. In the book of Nahum, the book of Nahum is a reminder that God is righteous. God is righteous and that God will punish the evildoer. That is one big component of, of what this book is all about. God is righteous. It is within his right to punish the evildoer. He will do that. If you look at verses 2 through 3, let's read those verses together. Nahum 1, verses 2 through 3. And the verses that we're about to read are very reminiscent of what you'll find in Jonah. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2 in particular. We read here that the Lord is a jealous God and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. God is righteous. He is an avenger against those who commit unrighteousness. So if you persist in sin, if you persist in unrighteousness, eventually you will have to come face to face with God. And the last verse of the book of Nahum it is to me a good summary as to what the book is all about. And this is Nahum 3 and verse 19. We read, and this message is spoken to uh, specifically to the people of Nineveh. We read here that there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Why? For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. I think that's a great summary of what the book of Nahum is all about. You see in the first part of that verse, God says, your wound is grievous, there's no easing your hurt. Um, basically, the, the pain that you are about to experience, it's pretty bad. Uh, your end is going to be complete. And the, the news about what's going to happen uh, in the city of Nineveh in 612 B.C., that news is going to spread. And when the nations, when, when the people of God even, when they hear about your downfall, when they hear about your demise, they're going to clap their hands. And what that means is they're going to rejoice. They're going to consider it to be good news that you fail 
Why? Because you for so long have persisted in your evil ways. Nineveh, you're going to hurt. You're going to suffer a grievous wound. The Babylonians and the Medes are going to besiege your city. Your city will fall. And the effect of the siege will be the end for the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and there's a lot of verses that go into detail as to what uh, the downfall is going to be like, like in two. For example, uh, in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 8, they're going to be overwhelmed with an overwhelming flood. So think about a flood just coming over them. Maybe it's reminiscent of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, those floodwaters prevailing over them. That's kind of what it's going to be like. They're going to be pursued into darkness, Nahum 1 and verse 8. Darkness where there is no light. Darkness where there is no hope. Their end is going to be complete, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. Their yoke will be broken, Nahum 1 and verse 13. Uh, their name will no longer be perpetuated, Nahum 1 and verse 14. There, there, there's so many examples like that. I just don't have time to go over all of them. But the, the final effect of all of this in uh, 612 B.C. when they're going to fall... The final effect of all, of all of this is going to be that they're going to be incredibly shamed. This is a group of people who have brought great shame to others, and now they themselves are going to be shamed. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. We read, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Now, that, that's pretty, uh, well, that, that's, that's shameful. And God is the one saying, I'm the one doing this to you. Well, is God literally doing this to them? No, he, he's using the, 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 the Babylonians. He's using the, the Medes to do this. But God is saying, I'm the, I'm the one carrying out this justice against you. This shame is coming because of me. But that's not what the book of Nahum is completely about. Yes, it is this message that uh, the Assyrians are going to be judged, but the book is also about how that message is going to carry, how the message of the Assyrians being overthrown is going to spread, and how that news is going to be received by others. And as we saw in verse 19 of chapter 3, no one is going to feel bad for Nineveh. Uh, everybody's going to clap whenever they hear about the downfall of Nineveh. No one's going to feel bad for them. Look at Nahum 3 and verse 7. Next verse, we read, And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? So again, nobody's going to feel sorrow for the downfall of Nineveh. And this is true for all the nations. This is true for all the Gentile nations. This is true for the Babylonians, the Medes, the Elamites, and all the, the nations in that region. This is going to be true for the Egyptians. Everyone is going to feel happy. They're going to rejoice that uh, Nineveh has met its end. But the book is especially about how the nation of Israel is going to receive that news, the news of Nineveh's destruction. Israel or Judah, I should say. Judah will be comforted by the news of Nineveh's judgment. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. <clears throat> chapter 
1 and verse 12. We read, Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength, and that's talking about the Ninevites, Though the Ninevites are at full strength, and though there are many, they will be cut down. They will pass away. And then God says, and he's talking here to Judah, God says, though I have afflicted you, how had God afflicted Judah? Well, he had afflicted them through the Assyrians. Though I've afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. You see what God is saying there? He's saying that the Assyrians have oppressed you, my people. And now their oppression is going to be taken away. Look at verse 15. Here's the good news. And this will sound familiar to you. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For, you, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Tell me, does anybody, uh, does, does anybody read that verse and think, well, I've read that somewhere before. Where have you read that, the first part of that verse? What, what New Testament book? Romans. That is alluded to in Romans chapter 10. Uh, that passage is also very familiar to Isaiah 52. But God says, God is saying here, there's going to be someone who comes to you, Judah, and they are going to be bringing good news. What will be the good news? The good news that they're bringing the people of Judah is that, hey, Nineveh has fallen. That will, that will be good news uh, to Judah. Why? Well, because Judah is now going to be free to live their lives without oppression. They're now going to be free to fulfill their vows. They're not going to be bothered by uh, worthless people and worthless nations. Those nations are now utterly cut off. So Nineveh's destruction, what I want you to see is that Nineveh's destruction is great news to Judah. And if we keep in mind all the atrocities that the Assyrians committed, we can begin to understand why the people of Judah would have received that message to be good news. The reason why is because, hey, there's no more trouble. There's no more affliction. There's no more slavery. There's no more oppression. Uh, We don't have to worry about our children being taken away by the Assyrians anymore because the Assyrians are no more. So basically the idea is that whenever we hear of justice occurring in the world, that's good news to us. Whenever we hear about injustice in the world, that is bad news. And I know that you can uh, resonate with that comment because if you turn on your news, uh, the evening news at night, you, you will see injustice after injustice after injustice. And how does that make us feel? Well, it, it makes us feel despair. It causes us to feel feelings of dismay. It causes us to throw up our hands and say, well, I, just, I don't want to live here anymore. I want God to take me home. But when we hear about justice occurring, it seems like what is wrong with the world is made right. And that's really what the book of Nahum is all about. 
Yes, there is injustice in the world, but in time, what has been wrong will be made right. It is hard for us to believe that God's people... Um, it, it's not. It, it's not hard for us to believe that God's people would have taken comfort to know that their oppressors had been conquered because people, people want justice. Uh, we crave justice. Psalm 43 and verse 1, the psalmist pleaded with God, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Amos 5, 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Like I, like I said a moment ago, it, it often proves to be very discouraging for us to see injustice in the world. And the reason why is because it seems like those who commit injustices, it seems like, for the most part, they get away with it. And I think Jonah was one of those people. Jonah observed the injustices committed by the Assyrians. And I believe that he believed that the people of Nineveh got away. They found a loophole somehow. They got away with those injustices. And the book of Nahum addresses important questions that come up, like, does it pay to be wicked? Does it pay to be wicked? In the short term, it might appear that it does. In the long term, the answer is always no. The book of Nahum addresses that question. Also, will the wicked get away with their wickedness forever? No, they won't. Is it a fool's errand to strive to live a righteous life and then to suffer at the hands of the wicked? Is it a fool's errand to strive to live a life of a Christian? No. And then what about those sinners who, who turn to God and then just go right back to their evil ways? That's what the Ninevites did. Can the sinner abound in sin and expect, well, well, God's grace is going to cover it? No, it doesn't work like that. And it also, the book does, it addresses a question, does God's patience with sinners ever expire? And yes, it does. It does. And why is that? The reason why is because God is just. He is slow to anger, but there does come a point in time in which his wrath will be unleashed. Psalm 9, verses 7 through 8. Psalm 9, 7 through 8. The psalmist writes, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. God is just, and he will judge the world of its unrighteousness. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 6 through 9. In the New Testament, this, this idea is affirmed. We read, since indeed God considers it just to repay affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, 
When's this going to happen? It's going to happen, Paul says, when the Lord Jesus. It's going to happen right now? Well, no. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul says that they will suffer punishment, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. God is just, and because He is just, He will not tolerate sin. He's slow to anger. He's good, but there does come a point in time where the opportunity to tap into the goodness of God and experience His goodness for yourself and to be everlastingly blessed by His goodness, there does come a point in time in which those opportunities expire. That was true for the people of Nineveh, and it's true for everyone today who persists in sin and dies in sin. And the message of Nahum is that God's judgment against sin is good news. Let me say that again. The message of Nahum is that God's judgment against sin is good news. Again, everybody's happy whenever Nineveh falls. When someone comes over the mountains and has gospel feet and is proclaiming that good news, that it is considered good news. This is a message that God's people need to hear today. Right now it seems like the world is winning. It seems like the world is winning. They're not. It seems like evildoers are coming out on top. They won't. It seems like it pays to be evil. It doesn't. God's people today should not look to the world and envy the success of the world. The world's violence, the world's oppressing others, it, it brings some sort of temporary earthly success, but it does not bring everlasting success. Look at Psalm 37 and verse 1. We read, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Why? Well, here's why. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. They will fade away. They will fade away. Christians, this is why we must hold fast in the face of persecution. We must continue to entrust our souls to a faithful creator that we have while we go about doing good. The point that we should see from the book of Nahum is that evil does not prevail. The devil is going to be thrown in the lake of fire, as we read in the book of Revelation, and all who are deceived by the devil, they too will be right there with him. Somehow that's good news to us. I want to make a point of clarification here in just a minute, but before I do that, I want to talk about how we escape. How we escape 
the, the outcome that the Ninevites experienced for themselves. They're on the wrong side of God's judgment. How can we escape the wrong side of God's judgment? How can a, a group of people who have committed sin, and, and that's what the Bible teaches, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, uh, verse, uh, what is it, 10, in that very same chapter, there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all a part of the problem because we are all uh, contributing to the problem of sin in the world. How can a group of people like that, who are just as guilty as the Ninevites, escape condemnation? How can we escape judgment? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for us. Yes, it is true that the wages of sin is death. But, and, and that's the good news, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what Jesus did for you and what he did for me is that he became sin for us. All the injustices that we see out in the world today that you know, we can see on the evening news every day, all those injustices, they do not even begin to compare to the injustice of the cross because God laid upon his only begotten Son every transgression, every sin, every injustice. Jesus bore it all. And the only way, friends, are you listening? The only way that we can escape condemnation and judgment, the only way we can escape these things is whether or not Christ Jesus lives in us. If he lives in us and if we have life in him, then we will experience this eternal life that we read about at the end of Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Yes, God is just. He's also good. So come to know His goodness. Live and abound in His goodness. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess Him. Live for Him forever. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have the hope of eternal life in your life. That's what we want for everyone. And as we live our lives as Christians, we will suffer. We will incur injustices in, in our own lives. Sometimes we will wonder, is it worth it? Sometimes we will ask the question, why does God allow this evil to happen in my life? Why is he not doing something about it? It's, it seems to be the case that evil, uh, it pays to be evil. We might be tempted to think that sometimes, but we need to remember the message of the book of Nahum, that it does not pay to be evil. Those who persist in evil, they will meet their end. Sin is not going to win. We need to hear that message. That is a good news message. Now let me make a point of clarification here. We do not rejoice at the death of the wicked. We do not. In light of the New Testament especially, and in light of the heart of God... I'm not suggesting that you and I should rejoice in the destruction of sinners. The gospel heart is capable 
of mourning even the demise of one's enemies. I want you to think about what David did for Saul. You remember Saul tried to kill David not once but twice, many occasions? What did David do when he heard about Saul's death? He mourned. He lamented the fact that the king of Israel had fallen, and Jonathan as well. David loved Saul, his enemy, even to the point of death. He had, after all, a heart. A little heart that was like God's. And as we get to the life of Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus has taught us that we must love our enemies and pray for those who mistreat us. The Bible itself teaches us that God does not have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18 and verse 23. The Bible teaches us that God would have all men everywhere to be saved, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. But the reality is that not all men will be saved. There are two ways, only two. There is a Broadway. Many are walking on that Broadway. It leads to destruction. There's also a narrow way. Not many walk that way, but it leads to life. It is a sorrowful truth to us as Christians that so many are on that Broadway. It's not, good, it's not good news to us that they're going to perish. It's good news that people might be saved. The reason why Judah could rejoice at the fall of Nineveh is that through God's justice, there would now be peace. That through God's justice, there would now be comfort. That where there was once affliction... Now there would be now there would be comfort. Where there was once bondage, now there would be freedom. Nineveh's destruction was good news to the people of Judah, but the destruction of sin's trouble, of sin's affliction, and sin's bondage, the destruction of these things, that's the best news that anyone could ever receive, and that's the message that we have. Someone at some time came to you with beautiful gospel feet, and they proclaimed to you good news. They proclaimed to you a message about God's love for you. They proclaimed to you a message of God's work that He has done in this world to bring about a Savior. How this beloved Son of God lived a perfect, sinless life, he did something that none of us could ever do. We're sinners, yet he was without sin. And because he lived a perfect, sinless life, he was hated for that. And he was nailed to a Roman cross. He became sin for us. But Jesus did not stay in that tomb that he was buried after he had died. He rose from the grave. And in doing so, he offers life to all of us. That's good news. Let's go out and let's share that news this week. Let's be comforted 
by that news. Let's also be comforted to know that every injustice in the world that we see, God in his own timing and in his own way, he will make it right. There's coming a day, church, where God will wipe away every tear from our eye. Look forward to that day. In the meanwhile, keep on working, keep on entrusting your soul to your creator. He will judge justly. Thank you for studying with me this evening. We will dismiss with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we love you, we praise you, we give all glory and honor and uh, praise to you, Father. Uh, Father, we pray for the hour that we've just had together. We pray that something will have been said that will have brought comfort to us, and we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, thank you for Jesus who gives us hope, and you're the God of all comfort, Father, and we, we praise you, and we thank you for how you have blessed our lives in so many ways. And Father, uh, we, we ask that you'll be with us as we leave this place, and help us to minister to others, and help, help us to bring good news to others. Uh, Father, we thank you for your justice, we thank you for your judgment, but we thank you that we have hope in the face of these eventualities, Father. We are so excited to be able to stand before the judge at that final day. And Father, we believe and we anticipate that we will hear those words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, bring us safely to that day. And it's our prayer in the name of Jesus we pray.